Um, today we're reading from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil, desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived with them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, which neither where neither where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Amen. Thanks, Nita, for reading that. I'll open us uh, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you so much for your word. And as we open your word, Lord, and seek to learn from it, we remember that we seek to learn from you. These are your words, and this is your will for our lives. And so I pray that you grant understanding, uh, knowledge, wisdom, and that um, your Holy Spirit will bring conviction that leads to change. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I didn't hear any amens. Amen. Well, uh, it's good to be uh, preaching again. Um, it comes to uh, no surprise to anyone um, that uh, the country that a person belongs to uh, invariably impacts their sense of identity. Um, and that their sense of identity in turn uh, influences their tendency to feel certain things. Um, do certain things, make certain decisions. Um, and you can see that in the type of food that they eat. Um, you can think of Australia, um, the type of sports that they play, uh, the sort of mannerisms that they uh, tend to exhibit, even their family structures. Everything comes back to a sense of identity. Um, and while a quick Google search um, will show that there are uh, 195, I hope I'm right in that, 195 countries across the world, uh, the Bible only gives us two choices when it comes to what country, uh, spiritual country we come from. There's two. The first is the kingdom of darkness, and the second is the kingdom of God's Son. And we've already seen in Colossians that uh, the Christian has been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's son saw that in chapter two and in our chapter this morning uh, Paul's aim is to remind us that 
country that we'll, we belong to spiritually will and must change the way that we live our lives. So turn, if you haven't already, to Colossians chapter 3. Um, in the pas passage before us, um, right from verse 1 to 17, uh, Paul gives the exhortation both to put off and to put on. And in the interest of time this morning, we'll just be looking at the, the putting off, as Anita's read for us. Um, so Colossians chapter 3, and we'll uh, start by reading the first uh, four verses. If then <clears throat> you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So it's important to note the context of this passage. Um, if you can remember, as we've been working through it, um, Paul has been exhorting the church not to be ruled by the elementary principles of the world. Uh, we see that all the way back in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, uh, I say this, in order that no one may delude you by, uh, with plausible arguments. Uh, so there are these plausible arguments that we're told to um, stay away from. And then in verse 8, he clarifies what he means by that. Um, he calls it philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world. And then in verses 16 through to 23, uh, he makes it abundantly clear that any argument uh, which... Uh, disqualifies us based on human regulations uh, we are have to have absolutely nothing to do with. Um, <clears throat> but what is the alternative to these things, to the elementary principles and regulations? Surely it's Christ. The answer is a resounding Christ. Paul talks at length about Christ in chapter 1, uh, from verses 13 to through 23. In verses 6 and 7, he exhorts us to walk in Christ as we received him. And then from verse 8 all the way down to 15, we're reminded of the glorious exchange of the gospel on the part of Christ. Um, and it's following on from that that um, in these first four verses, Paul gives us four uh, foundational realities. Um, they're four realities that we cannot forget as Christians. First is, verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ. The second, verse 3, for you have died. And we'll talk about that later. Then again in verse 3, and your life is hidden with Christ. And in verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then also you will appear with him. I don't know if you noticed, but in three out of those four, we hear the the, the phrase with Christ. These are realities about us being with Christ positionally. And in other words, when we, we see that when it comes to life and death, everything that has happened and will happen to Christ um, has and will also happen to us. It's a glorious reality. And it's only by virtue of that reality um, that Paul then uh, calls us to obey God's law and to grow in holiness. 
And it's a very important distinction, a distinction that the reality comes first and not the other way around. So we'll look at these in turn. Firstly, um, look at verse 1 uh, to the reality we have been raised with Christ. Now, what Paul is saying here is, is quite staggering, um, that ordinary, everyday Christians like us have actually participated in the resurrection of Christ. You have been raised with Christ. When Christ was raised from the dead, it was not only him that was raised. It was also we who were raised. We were united to him by faith. We've actually been counted there with him in his resurrection. The tomb is empty for both Christ and for us. And this is summed up in uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, where Paul says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses <laughs> and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together, and here, with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And this is not some uh, unimportant nuance uh, that Paul is giving here. It's actually an essential component to the gospel because uh, the gospel is not only that Christ has been raised, although it does include that, but it's also that by faith we will be raised with him. And I think uh, this can be uh, different to the way we normally view the gospel. Um, we tend to think of the gospel as a sequence of events that happened 2,000 years ago um, that we need to believe in. And it certainly is, um, but to view it that way alone lacks the reality that, that we are connected to um, Christ's resurrection. Um, looking at the way that Paul talks about it here changes us from mere spectators to participants in Christ's resurrection. So you have been raised with Christ. We're to enter into the gospel. And then secondly, look at, look at verse 3. For you have died. Now we should ask, uh, what's Paul saying here? I thought in verse one, we have been raised. Now why am I why am I dying? The answer is in chapter two, verse twenty. And if you can look there in your Bibles, uh, Paul says, If with Christ, there again, you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? So Paul's aim in, in that statement is um, to prove that submitting to regulations doesn't make sense to the Christian. I mean, that's obvious, but the impetus for that statement is what? That we've died with Christ and that we've died to the world. Um, in dying to the world, Galatians 4, uh, Galatians 6, 14, uh, puts it like this. Um, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So the Christian and Paul have been crucified with Christ to the world. We've not only been raised with him, but we've also died with him to the world. Um, but dying to the world, what, what does that mean? It might not be um, exactly clear at first glance. I think it means two things. 
uh, the first of which is dying to the law and its condemnation. Uh, reading Galatians chapter 2, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we've died to the law. We're not dying in the sense of um, taking away that it's a good standard of holiness, um, but we've died to the law as a means of salvation. We've died to the law alone as our source of holiness. Christ is now that. We, um, Christ is living in us, and that is our um, our progression in holiness. And and this is why Paul has been laboring to say to the Colossians, get away from the regulations, get away from the principles, because if we go there, we're missing Christ in that. And then secondly, just as equally um, as important, is dying to the world is dying to uh, sin and its uh, power. Now turn with me to Romans uh, chapter 6 and the first four verses. <clears throat> Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So you see, verse 2, Paul says, we have died to sin. And immediately following that, in verse 3, he says, we have um, being baptized into Christ Jesus, into his death. The connection to Christ's death and our death to sin uh, is right there. In other words, uh, being dead to the world means that we're no longer ruled by a love of sin or uh, a control um, of sin that makes us love the world and the things that are in it. We no longer hold the world up as the highest treasure of our hearts. Um, that treasure becomes Christ and sin therefore dies. So we've died to the world, we've died to the law and its condemnation, and we've died to sin and its power. And um, there are two other realities, and we mentioned them, but I thought given the importance of um, the connection between our uh, dying to the world and um, and putting off or killing uh, the things of the flesh that we'll move on to verses 5 to 11. So look there with me, starting at verse 5. Um, Paul in this section does not use soft words. Um, the words he starts with here are, I think, meant to catch our attention. What does he say? Put to death. Put to death. Those are not, not soft words. Those are hard words. But the action of putting something to death is, is a difficult one. And like a, a, a jarring one. This is not meant to be a soft reality. Uh, it sounds like Paul where he says, I die daily. 
or like Jesus, where he says, take up your cross and follow me. The thing I think that we should see in that is when Paul uses such strong language here, he evidently believes that this is something really important. This is a very serious thing. You remember Jesus' words when he spoke about sin on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, he, he, he said, cut off, your, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, lest sin um, take over you. And it's, it's the same here. Paul is so serious about sin because he understands the implications of unchecked sin. Now, it was uh, John Owen who said a famous phrase, uh, be killing sin or, anyone finish that? or it be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. <coughs> Very serious words. Unchecked sin kills people. It kills church-going people. It's not something we have the luxury of being soft on or lazy with. And Paul, Paul loves the Colossian church. And he, he believes <clears throat> that they are saved, but that doesn't stop him from telling them to put off the deeds of the flesh. It's just so important. Paul's not being harsh. He's being caring by telling them these things. And so what exactly must we put off? Well, Paul um, interestingly puts it in two lists. <clears throat> you can see the first one does start in verse 5. Um, this first list... Uh, broadly refers to what we do with physical desires. And the first, um, look in verse 5 with me, is sexual immorality. Uh, the word here is uh, pornea. It's uh, pretty straightforward. It refers to all forms of uh, sexual sin, uh, whether that's adultery or fornication, homosexuality, uh, really any kind of forbidden sexual act um, that uh, occurs outside the realms of uh, marriage between a man and a woman. Paul says this is something that we're to put off. And the, and the Bible repeatedly um, paints this particular sin in a very negative light. In the Old uh, Testament, we see sexual immorality in, uh, in angels. Uh, we see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, we see it in the rape of Dinah. The prostitution of Nahor, Samson and Delilah, David and Bathsheba, and just almost all of the kings, um, or maybe all of the kings who uh, had concubines and had more than one wife. Um, <clears throat> and in the New Testament, this is repeatedly connected with people who are either false teachers uh, or, or who are uh, people who are um, confessing to know Christ, but to not really know him. Um, those who will not stand in God's judgment. That's the first one, sexual immorality. The second look with me is impurity. Um, the emphasis here is, is still on sexual immorality. Um, but what I've heard is that the word shifts from uh, focus on the physical, the actions, to the thoughts, um, how we think in terms uh, of sexual terms. This reminds us of Jesus' words in Mark 7, where Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of a man, 
um, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I wonder if he could have kept going. Stopped. And it's a reminder that the battle for sexual purity is not simply won by abstaining from a few big action items that you put over to, to that side. Um, sexual purity, um, and this is something particularly for the men, it is something that you must deal with in the realm of your mind as well. I was um, uh, went bowling with some friends recently um, and it really stuck out to me how we live in a, uh, I guess, a very pornographic culture. Um, every time someone, you know, scored a, um, what's the term for bowling? Oh, not even a strike, but just um, hit a pin. There'd be you know, this very crude, uh, that's the right word either, but dancing, very provocative. Um, and almost all of the guys, Christian men, had to just put their heads down and, and look away. We live in a very uh, pornographic culture um, where it is difficult to live purely in our minds. So this is an important thing for us to remember. Um, and it begs the question for each of us, have we been proactive in keeping our thoughts pure? This is something that we're called to put off. It's something, as John Island would say, that will be killing us. We are not killing it that's impurity secondly uh, or thirdly and fourthly passion and evil desire uh, both of these terms also refer to sexual sin um, uh, but distinct from the others uh, the, the focus of these words is is on desires uh, another word for passion in some other translations is is actually lust and while this certainly does have a focus on sexual sin, you know, that lust is a, a sexual sin, um, there, there is language um, you know, throughout uh, church history, Puritans use this language, uh, but also in the Bible of having the lusts of the flesh. It's not only um, sexual immorality, it, it's more broad than that. It sort of opens the scope up. And um, the, the interesting thing to note is that um, the words that are used here, passion and even desire, um, both have absolutely no connection uh, to the sort of careful, considered, uh, reason-focused um, living that the Bible repeatedly calls us to have. It's doing things based on what you want, um, doing things based on what you feel. And that's very much the culture that we live in today as well. Does it feel right? Do you, do you feel or do you want this certain thing? And then you uh, go ahead and have that. Now looking at the Greek for these words, um, the sort of things that come up are longing, or yearning, or wanting. So to be led by passion is to be led solely by what we want. It's not about what we need or what we should do. To the passionate, those things are secondary. And the people uh, who try and excuse uh, passion, reasoned living, um, can't be motivated by the things that the Bible calls us to do. 
they're motivated instead by desires. And then um, lastly, in this list, Paul says, put off covetousness. Covetousness. Um, in looking up a bit about this word, uh, I came across one person who said that coveting is not only seeing what a neighbor has and wanting it, but certainly how the Ten Commandments put the word. Um, but uh, the Greek for the word is simply desire again. Um, but instead now it's it's broadened up to, to everything. Um, James touches on this when he says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. But what is the desire? What is wrong about the desire? Because it's not bad to desire things. We're meant to desire more of God. We're meant to, um, it's, it's not wrong to desire uh, even some physical things. Um, what makes a desire bad or covetous? And basically, the answer to that is that when a desire becomes disordered, it becomes coveting. When we want it out of place, uh, when we want it more than God, it's evidence that we are not content in him. And so our love has grown more for other things than for him which I think leads to uh, how he connects um, coveting and idolatry. You remember the first commandment? It says, you shall have no other gods before me. It's the commandment which says that God and God alone should be your God. He should be the one that you listen to for truth. He should be the one that you seek to obey. He should be the one that you seek to please. And idolatry is the manifestation of a, a self-seeking, uh, self-worshipping uh, train of thought, a rebellious heart that chooses to say no to doing all of those things and instead um, chooses to listen to themselves for truth, chooses to obey themselves rather than God, chooses to please themselves rather than God. setting ourselves up as someone to be worshipped, essentially. And so Paul says, put it off. And he actually commends the, the, the Thessalonians sorry, um, for doing that. He says, um, for they themselves uh, report concerning us the kind of reception among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God. And he, I, think, I think he connects that with with coveting um, so uh, put off coveting then moving on after verse 5 verses 6 and 7 before we get to the second list Paul says on account of these things the wrath of God is coming in these you two once walked when you were living in them so it's almost as if lest we get lazy at this point Paul reminds us of the implications of not putting these things off. Now, why would he, he say that? I don't think it's to undermine our assurance, but again, simply to remind us of the importance of these things. Um, and, you know, we talked a couple of weeks, or we heard a couple of weeks preached 
um, about the idea of falling away. Um, and we know how that works in with, with, um, with assurance and with perseverance. Um, but it's, it's certainly a true fact that church-going people can, uh, in one, well, at the end of the day, um, not be saved. Uh, we all, verse 7, once walked in them and lived in them. But now uh, it seems that we have been changed to being in Christ. And so um, that reality ought to be changing the way that we live. And you see that in verse 8 particularly, he uses the word must. Must. We must be putting them away. And all away. Which leads us to the second list of Paul's putting off. We might broadly say that this list re relates to our emotions and our speech. First three are our emotions. The next are our speech. Um, so firstly, read put off anger. Um, when it comes to anger... Uh, Paul is essentially referring to um, that resentful dislike for something that smolders deep within a person. Um, it sort of simmers there and, and sits there for a while. And uh, it's the thing that's behind when someone has a temper and it sort of flares up and, and they say a negative comment or, um, yeah, attack in some way. Or if they hold a grudge against someone, there's this smoldering, deep-down anger um, towards someone. And what did Jesus liken that to? What did Jesus liken anger to? Murder. Serious. Killing someone in your heart. If you give way to anger that lies deep within you, you're killing someone rather than killing your flesh complete opposite of what Paul is calling us to do. Wrath is the second one in that list, and on the other hand, uh, refers to it's an outburst of anger. It's an explosion. It's anger, but on an extreme level. It's fierce. Elsewhere, the word is translated as rage or indignation or fury. Um, the word images that you see when you look into it, it's primarily that of heat um, and not just something being hot, but blowing. You know, you can picture the, the blacksmith when they you know, heat up the furnace, put the sword in and they take it out. And what color is it? It's yellow. It's glowing with heat. And that's the same, same thing here. And Paul says to put that off, not only because it's wrong, um, but also in the context of this passage, um, you'll notice that he's he's just talked about the wrath of God coming on those who don't put off. Now this wrath is being mentioned as something that um, non-Christians do, people who are unsaved do. Um, and Paul is saying, don't take the place of God in your wrath. Leave it to God. There's a beautiful thing about being um, humble and uh, leaving the wrath to the Lord. And then last in uh, the anger 
uh, emotional related sins uh, is malice. Malice is defined as the desire to do harm to another person. That can be physical or that can um, be more inward. Um, it is to have a wicked disposition. Um, the Old Testament helps paint the picture of this sin. Uh, firstly, in Psalm 41, verse 5, where it says, My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? Secondly, Ezekiel 25, verses 6 and 7, For thus says the Lord God, because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the malice within your soul, against the land of Israel. Therefore, behold, I have stretched out my hand against you and will hand you over as plunder to the nations. That sounds like anger, but it's anger that leads to wanting to harm someone. It's a very deep sense of anger. And um, this is something we have to, um, to, to be thinking about as Christians. People... People hurt us. There are people hurting us um, in the workplace, um, in our families, even in the church. And it's important to remember that there is no excuse for anger or malice or wrath that God calls us to be holy. Then the next uh, three, um, Paul mentions, uh, as we mentioned, are the, the sins of the mouth, that Paul tells us to put away. Firstly, slander. In the Greek, this word is blasphemia, which of course is related to the word blasphemy. And uh, another word for this might be to vilify or revile someone. Um, and in the Bible, uh, this sin is often put together very closely with the sin of gossiping. Uh, we all know what gossip is. It involves uh, saying something true, but negative, about someone with the effect of harming their reputation. Um, slander, on the other hand, involves um, saying something negative about a person. It also results in harm to their reputation, but it's not true. It goes a step further than gossiping, is to say something untrue. The person slandering is either making up what they say or sharing an opinion or um, uh, exaggerating those truths such that they're slandering in a way that's not true. Um, it's a step further down the line of sin. And just one thing that I would say with regard to both slander and gossip is that um, the Bible doesn't distinguish between um, slandering or gossiping about spiritual things. There's no license to gossip god doesn't say gossiping is bad unless you're gossiping about a person's spiritual well-being about their knowledge of the bible or their lifestyle and how that relates to the bible no paul just says don't gossip don't slander the whole thing whether it's spiritual or not is divisive it's harmful it's demeaning to people who, and this is important, are image bearers of God. It's the image of God where, in, a, in the word blaspheming, it cannot be justified. 
and the sphere of, uh, sphere of work uh, that I'm in, there's a, a principle called the need to know principle. It's pretty self-explanatory. You either need to know or you don't need to know. Those who don't need to know aren't told, and those who do need to know can be told. Um, and in the team that I'm in, um, we're the people who have to take on all the all the formal complaints, um, all the investigations, mitigate disagreements. Um, we know when someone's being demoted or has been unsuccessful for a job or if the agency is going through a change process, all these things that sort of get to appreciate how important secrecy is or confidentiality. Um, the need to know principles pretty important. But how would you feel if someone with that level of information was very flippant about the way that they shared that information? How would you feel if they felt at liberty to fudge the facts, share their opinions? Doesn't seem right, does it? How much more in a church? How much more for the people of God? Not to gossip, not to slander, not to assume, not to give license for any sort of thing. Should be the this should be the safest place. They often say that in meetings, you know, safe space. Chat in the house rules, I think that's what it's called. This should be a safe space where people can um, not fear that sort of thing. So how is your need to know the principle? Is it good? Do you filter what you say about other people? So kill the gossiping. Uh, next, looking at verse 8, what follows is obscene talk. In other translations, this might appear as filthy or shameful or foul language. Um, any sort of talk that is uh, crude or crass, vulgar or indecent would come under this category. And uh, you're probably familiar with these two verses in Ephesians, um, which I think are very helpful. Um, Ephesians 4, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Later on in chapter 5, verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And here we need to remember um, that the world we're living in, that we are living in today, is growing more and more crude, crass, vulgar. Um, foul language is becoming more and more acceptable. And um, putting off uh, this sin is going to make us stand out even more. That's an opportunity to, to witness to people. People at, at my work, at, um, they know that the things that I say are uh, or not willing to say are very different to them. Um, and that's a good thing. Uh, one thing I will share on this um, as well, Lucy showed me this great plaque that we're planning to, uh, to put on the wall of our house. I've planned to, I don't know if it's going to say it. But it, it's, it says this, and it's very helpful. Um, it's got at the top in big bold letters, when to keep your mouth shut. And 20, uh, a list of 20 things 
in the heat of the anger, when you don't have all the facts, when you haven't verified the story, if your words will offend a weaker brother, if your words will be a poor reflection of the Lord, when you're tempted to joke about sin, when, the, when you would be ashamed of your words later, when you are tempted to make light of holy things, if your words would convey a wrong impression, if the issue is none of your business, when you are tempted to tell an outright lie, if your words will damage a person's reputation, if your words will destroy a friendship, when you are feeling critical, if you can't speak without yelling, when it is time to listen, if you may have to eat your words later, if you have said it already, when you are tempted to flatter, when you are meant to be working instead. And there are Bible verses next to each one of those. So put off that kind of speech. Then lastly, uh, lying. Paul wants us to put off lying. And this one should be pretty straightforward. We know um, all, all throughout the Bible, particularly in Genesis, um, there are just lies everywhere. Um, think of in the garden. The first one is the snake, Satan, telling a lie. But later on, we also see Cain lying about his brother to God. Abraham lying to the Egyptians. Sarah lying. Isaac lying. Rebecca lying. Jacob lying. Laban lying. Jacob's sons lying. That's just in Genesis. Um, and we know uh, that in a book that has so much to say about holiness, the holiness of God, the, the righteousness of God, and how he was perfect, how he made things good, um, we also see at the same time uh, the tendency of man to not tell the truth. Um, and that's part of our our flesh, um, the flesh that we're called to put off. So Paul uh, exhorts us to put off lying. Even in the smallest ways, um, I've been reading the uh, biography of uh, Robert Murray McShane, um, and it's a really, really great book. I would encourage you to read it. Um, and in reading that, I came across the account of his um, elder brother. Um, he uh, was elder by, I think, eight or nine years, and he lived a very short life. Um, he grew ill quite quickly. He was well regarded for his godly character. Um, and his classical attainments, um, he was doing very well. And in the book, um, it is said that one distinguishing quality of his character was his sensitive truthfulness. In a moment, would the shadow flit across his brow? In other words, uh, if any incident were related, wherein the slightest exaggeration was portrayed. He, um, that is, he thought that others must not speak the whole truth himself, but he also must have the hearer to apprehend the whole truth. We can be quite deceptive about the way we use words, but this man was not, um, it was not enough for him only to tell the truth. He wanted you to know exactly what the truth was. And that's a beautiful thing. 
And that's part of, I think, how we should view um, the call to put off lying. Lying in, in all its forms. So that we might have holiness in all its forms. So that's slander, obscene talk, and lying. Um, and those uh, to the list that um, gives us uh, 11 sins that Paul says um, that we need to be killing. But how do we kill these sins? That's that's the most important question. We know what they are. We can talk about um, how we how we should view them. Um, but how do we kill them? And it's it's as basic meaning to be killing them uh, will mean to stop doing them. Um, it it will mean um, taking away the things that provide an opportunity to do them. Um, for example, uh, to uphold sexual purity, thought and deed, um, my friends and I probably wouldn't go back to the same bowling. Um, or we might be uh, guarded towards uh, the opposite sex. Um, if you know that a, a certain topic um, with your spouse tends to spark anger, then walking very delicately around that topic. Um, it's simple things that might not seem super spiritual, um, but they're not bad things to do. It wasn't unspiritual for Joseph to run out of the house when Potiphar was tempting him. That was a spiritual step of, um, of holiness. It showed a distaste and hatred toward that sin. But how can we be sure um, that the physical steps that we're taking those simple things aren't just regulations, because that is the context of what Paul is talking about. He's saying, don't do the regulations. Don't just put off in a in a regulative way. Um, there are a couple of things. The first um, comes from an observation made by a man called Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, he has this running podcast that's like five minute five minutes long every day called Things Unseen. It's very good. I'd recommend it. Um, but in the podcast, he references Colossians 3, verse 5, and he gives this piece of advice. It says, whatever you come to realize is distorting the image of the Lord Jesus in you, be sure to give it a name. Scripture encourages us to confess our faults, but Scripture actually encourages us also not to be vague about them, to confess our faults in not to confess our faults in general, but to specify them, to give them a name. And uh, it's helpful because uh, in our spiritual tiredness, uh, perhaps in our laziness, um, or whatever it is, our tendency is to generally pray about it, to pray generally, pray generally for, uh, for things that we uh, want to happen, but also to pray against the sins that we know are in our lives. Uh, Lord, please help me to stop sinning. It's a very vague prayer. Uh, Lord, please help me to stop lying. Lord, I just lied today. That is a specific prayer that is healthy. Um, we can see that, that God is a God of specifics in the way that he gives laws, so we should be specific in responding to those laws in our confession. So the second um, from Paul, as he continues, is, is from Paul, sorry, as he continues in verse 9. So read verse 9 with me. It says, do not lie 
to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, this is verse 10 now, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. The focusing a focus here is being renewed in knowledge. Not earthly knowledge, but spiritual knowledge of God. This is also the primary instruction that we're given in the first four verses, where after talking about the realities, the four realities, Paul says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. In other words, to be renewing our minds in the word of God, if we want to be putting off the old self, then strive to constantly set your mind on God so that you're always learning more about him, that your affections are being driven towards him and not towards the world. You are what you think about As one commentator puts, her, uh, puts it, this should have us seeing all things in relation to God and striving to see all things as God sees them. So that's, it's a great question. Do we see renewing our minds, growing in knowledge of God as a duty of the Christian life? Or is the duty the list and the knowledge is sort of off to the side. They come as one and the same. We have to renew our minds so that we can put off the old self. And more than that, um, that first um, verse of the third chapter, where he says to seek the things that are above, it seems to me more than just... Um, thinking about heaven, but living in anticipation of heaven, having not only knowledge, um, but desire, a good desire, for heaven. That can only happen when we renew our minds, but it's um, it's not only knowledge, it is, it is also having an expectation, living and thinking as though heaven is our true home. And challenging ourselves when we aren't thinking it that, that way. One of the hymns puts it like this. Mighty spirit, live in me. I would heavenly minded be. Let my heart, its sovereign own, Christ its centre, Christ alone. And the third is this. Um, third uh, way we can be growing. Um, actually trusting that um, being specific about your sin, the first point, and that renewing your mind, the second point, can actually bring change. It's incredible how easy it is to start doing those things, but then not trusting that God is going to bring the fruit of that labor. God says if we renew our minds, if we are putting off, uh, putting to death, the old self, um, we will be growing in holiness. We're not meant to, we're meant to grow. We're not meant to stay where we are with the same sins 
um, we, we do struggle with the same sins, but we um, there is growth there. And obedience can never be perfect, and, and God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Um, but we shouldn't spend so long focusing on the lack of perfection that we lose sight on the growth toward perfection, if I can put it that way. So trust God to change you. And so to close, I just ask you, what kingdom, what country are you joining us from this morning? That's the first thing. From the kingdom of God's son. Yes? Amen. And secondly, um, have you been raised with Christ? Have you died with Christ to the world? Yes? Amen. What does your life say about that? Does your life testify to a change in country? Kingdom. The kingdom. Is your tongue bridled? Have you been killing anger? Have you been turning away passions? Living for Christ. Remember who you are. Remember with whom you have been raised and with whom you have died. And as Paul says, if then you have been raised, seek the things which are above where Christ is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do pray that you would bring lasting change, growing change to each one of us. Lord, that we would not be content with the sins that cling so closely, as your word says, as we look with eager anticipation to heaven. Lord, we thank you so much um, that this hope of heaven is real, that the reality of us dying with Christ and being raised with Christ is also real. And Father, I just pray that as we seek to honor you, as we seek to live godly lives, that you would bring um, real lasting change, um, perseverance, and fruit that confirms our calling. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.